A few minutes after Neil Armstrong had first walked on the moon, and he had already given his famous one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind statement, he took some time to meander about the lunar surface, take stock of what was going on. Um, there was a mission, and he was following the mission parameters, cataloging, looking, studying, all of those good things, reporting back to the people back at home on Earth. Uh, and just when he was done, again, minutes afterwards, he was about to re-enter the lander. And as he was doing that, uh, spouting out all technical jargon, he, one of, amongst his very last comments, if not his very last comment, was, good luck, Mr. Gorski. Now, many people at NASA back in the, in the day thought, well, it's just a casual remark, or maybe in, in, in such a way that Neil was reaching out to perhaps a Russian cosmonaut or somebody in the Russian space program as an act of goodwill. You got to remember, we weren't getting along very well with the Russians back then. Glad those days are over. And so maybe this was Neil's way of, you know, a, a new sense of the uh, diplomacy now that we were, you know, people of space. But as the NASA uh, folks started looking into it, they could not find a Mr. Gorsky anywhere in either the Russian or the American space program. This became the stuff of legend, and over the years, many, many people uh, questioned uh, Neil Armstrong about this. They wanted to know, what did good luck Mr. Gorsky mean? But Neil uh, refrained from ever talking about it. He said something to the effect that Mr. Gorsky was still alive and that he would not answer any questions or he would uh, tell the tale until, um, until he was gone in order to protect so, yeah, and, and be sensitive towards him. But as of ninety, back in ninety five, the person finally did pass away, and so he felt compelled uh, to share. The way that he tells now his story is that when he was a kid, his brother and himself were playing out in the backyard, and somebody tossed the ball too far, and it went over onto the neighbors. So Neil hops over the fence. Uh, sneaks into the spot where the ball is, and it just happens to be within the near shot of a window where the Gorskis are having a heated argument. So he perks up his ear and starts to listen in, a no, you know, nosy kid that he was. And at one point he hears Mrs. Gorski shouting to Mr. Gorski, oral sex? Oral sex you want? Uh, you'll get oral sex when the kid next door walks on the moon. End of story. When I first heard that, and I, I don't know where it was, I think it was at a convention, a conference, early on uh, in my 20s, it blew my mind. I thought, what an amazing coincidence. That has got to be the craziest uh, happenstance ever. Um, I was giddy to retell the story to other people, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't know for what, for whatever reason, my generation is not as big of a, uh, they're not as big as fans of the space program. But to me, I find it enthralling. One of my favorite movies is Apollo 13. Uh, Gravity is right up there. Um, anything that has to do with space exploration, the way that we got to the moon, oh, miniseries, documentaries. Anything along those lines that I can get my hands on, 
um, I do, and it and it comes from my early twenties when I, when I, when I was inspired by the by these men and women that made it out there and were able to leave the bonds of our atmosphere and move past that onto these great beyonds. Um, and even it wasn't a Star Wars or a, a kind of deal. I re- I understood that that was a fantasy. But these were people that were really in the out- our outer limits. And they were and they had done and seen some fantastical things. So I have always had this fascination for anything for for things um, out of space. And this was such a, a cherry on top of a Sunday kind of a story that I love to recall it. And nobody ever questioned me on it. They just thought, okay, it's a cute little anecdote. They never understood the the immensity of or what it meant to me. Then I was listening to a podcast or I was reading something and they were talking about probably YouTube and the debunk myths about the space program and somewhere along one of the videos uh, they mentioned this and I perked up and thought oh okay they're going to talk about it and sure enough they said it wasn't true they think that it was a body hackett joke that he was the one that started the rumor uh, and then they took a life of its own, and then comedians and other people like me uh, just started running with it, and it has become this uh, urban uh, legend. But it, it didn't happen. Uh, there is first and foremost, there's no recording of it ever occurring, and I'm not certain on this, but I don't. Uh, but I think that Neil Armstrong has actually said it didn't, didn't happen. It did not occur. But it's a heck of a story. Though the excitement that I felt back then was appended. And a sorrow came upon me because that was one of my favorite stories. It was a go-to at dinner parties with, uh, you know, it tells you how fun I am at dinner parties. But I would love to tell little stories like that. And, and now I couldn't, at least not tell it in good conscience. Now I knew that it was fake. And so I, I wouldn't share it anymore. Or I would always preface it with the fact that it didn't happen. But it loses its luster. So I, so it, it was a sorrow. It felt almost as if I was losing a, a friend. Somebody that I had been with for a long, long time. I, I always find moments like that. They make such an impression that I end up cataloging them. And that as sad as I might be for losing the fantasy, the fact that I have gained some new knowledge, uh, it helps. It makes it so that I think like I'm leapfrogging uh, a few steps in my development as a more rounded person. Yes, I lose the fantastical, but I gain more clarity on the real or what I perceive to be real. And and that's a good thing. So whenever those moments happen, I like to jot them down so that years later, like this, I can retell of my enlightenment or, or how I slowly became enlightened about certain topics. I had one of those just recently, and I guess it revolves around the concept of sex so I get it. so that's the reason why I try to tie these things together late one night just a few days ago I was watching uh, I was looking for something to watch on the Netflix and I came across a show called Explain it's brand new to or at least new to me when uh, when I found it uh, and it was created or it was produced by the people, I believe, at over at Vox, V-O-X. 
the producer was Christine Leskowski. I'm probably uh, pronouncing that incorrectly. Uh, but it revolved about the female orgasm, which I will tell you that for me, it's, it's a mystery. It's um, something that to this day I find mystifying. Not in the general sense, in a very particular sense. See, I've always felt that in order to be the best husband that I can be, the best partner that I can be, that I need to study, research, um, find ways to to bring more pleasure to my other half. That's when I signed up, quote unquote, for being her other half. It meant that. I wanted to be a conduit for pleasure for her. And I'm not talking just in the physical sense, but in all types. I, I talked about this before, and, and I'll continue to talk about it you know, until the end of time. There is nothing that I enjoy the most than making my wife laugh. Knowing that I've done something silly, or that I've made a great joke, um, or that I tickled her first thing in the morning, and she has this gorgeous, roaring laugh, this hearty, um, visceral laugh, that whenever I, I produce that from her, I get an endorphin rush, because it's Pavlovian. If she laughs, I get pleasure, and, and, it's, a, and it's a wonderful thing. It's, it drives me to continue to learn and to find out different stories and, 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 and dance about the house so that I can provide that that bit of pleasure for her, that liberty that she needs. I mean, the, the, the stress of the day and the work and the kids and the house and the bills and everything that goes along with that. If I can, for a couple of seconds, provide her um, laughter and break that stress, I've done my job. And so, and that goes with other things. We talked about food a, a few weeks ago. Same thing. If I can, if, if she can stop for a second and, and say, Gosh darn it, this was fantastic. Thank you. And, and she's in and, and her, and I, I, she talks about this, how she's got this physical reaction when they, whenever she's had something that I made that, that, that provides uh, pleasure. She, her uh, heart rate goes up and her cheeks become red and, and she's glowing. Whenever we've traveled somewhere and uh, we, we find a new locale or a new place that we haven't explored before, she has these same reactions. And so I am driven, as her other half, to do all that I can to provide her these moments of pleasure. I feel that I fail as a husband when either through my own selfishness or ambivalence or just you know, a lot of it has to do with selfishness, I take those away from her or I make her sad. Or I or I or I cause her to to doubt things. That is my failure as a husband. And whenever I have done it, um you know, I take stock of it too and and, and work my but off not to ever recreate those moments. And I can't tell you that I'm perfect at it. I'm flawed. 
and I have a lot of anxieties and a lot of <laughs> issues. But more than anything, I am driven by, for at least with her, you know, as, as a duty, if anything, to make sure that she leads as blissful of a life as I can, you know, as possible. And she does the same for me in, in, in her own different ways because we both approach things, um, you know, you know uh, from our own, from our own uh, part. But, you know, the reason why we've been together for as long as we have and the, and the reason why I believe that our marriage works is because we have both found ways to provide and to tap into those pleasure receptors that each one of each one of us possess and just trigger them constantly and throughout the day, um, whether it's through a text or whether it's through food or whether it's through smiles, whether it's through flirtations, whether it's through tears sometimes, or or some or of course through touch. The thing is though that. I'll admit, for me, it's simple. I am extremely visual, as I think most men are. I am, uh, and so I can look about the day, and there's a thousand targets out there, for lack of better terms, of things that I see and are visually appealing. Um, you know, I find people attractive, and 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 it doesn't have to be necessarily. You know, just basic curves. I I am I am attracted to intelligence. I am attracted to comedy. I am attracted to voices. I I I find people fascinating that way. We were driving about the other day in downtown LA, and we were going through a really rough part of town. And there was this cacophony of people and vendors all over the streets and and. Homeless folks on, you know, sleeping uh, at a park out in the open at three o'clock in the afternoon, and there was the smells of, of you know, water just standing still um, because they, they they had washed off the streets, but it had not yet evaporated. So there was that must in the air, and we had just, and so we're driving to this place, and I heard to my to my wife, there is beauty here. It doesn't seem like there is uh, to the naked eye because we, we have this idea of what's aesthetically pleasing. But as somebody that kind of grew up in an area like that, who who has enough life experience to realize that there is beauty in, in this, that there's a method to the madness here. And although it seems now foreign to me because I live in a place that is nowhere near as noisy, that there is something quite appeasing to some about the the, the 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 number of sounds and smells and people and life that's erupting from these places and she also explained to me really quickly that also it's a relative you know piece it also depends on where you're coming from there's a lot of spots in the world that are really really rough compared to that uh, the spot the, the place in Los Angeles that we were driving to is you know uh, it's a relative paradise. It all depends on what you know, right? So I find beauty in all sorts of different places, but you know, in that, but that's the general. Let's go back to talk about this 
uh, episode of Netflix called Explain, and it's the very first episode of this series. And of course, I guess the reason why it piqued my interest at 11.30 through midnight, whenever I happened to be up that day, was the fact that the title of it had to do with a female orgasm. I have been obsessed with it for a long time because, again, I feel that it is my responsibility to some degree as a partner to help provide pleasure to my other half. And so I clicked it on and started watching it. And they went across a lot of different things that I had already heard before. But the one that really keyed on me, and I asked this to my wife on a drive uh, just a day or so ago, is the question of, how many type of orgasms are there? She looked at me and she thought, well, and then she thought about it and she thought about it. And I, and I took notice of how long it was taking her to answer this because she should know, right? That, that, that was my assumption. You should know. I mean, I know. For me, I, I know all about it. Um, I've been studying myself for a long, long time. So why don't you know? I stay quiet because, again, I, I found in life that sometimes when you ask a question, you make them, we make the mistake of trying to pro and provide answers by interjecting. Sometimes the person really has to think it through and then come up with the best answer that they can. And then you can start having a dialogue. So I stayed quiet and quiet. And after, I don't know, a minute, a minute and a half, she, she uttered in my opinion, with a little bit of questioning, well, isn't there clitoral and vaginal? And there was a question mark at the end of that sentence, in my estimate. And so I thought, ha-ha, I just heard, saw this episode unexplained. Let me tell you, dear, you know, what I learned. And uh, I told her, well, according to what I saw, uh, there is really only one type and that is the clitoral orgasm. The crazy thing is that for as long as I, well, not as long, but I, I first always thought there was only the vaginal. I don't, am I pronouncing that right? Uh, and then they thought, well, there's, there's now this, the clitoral. And so I think there's two. And if I'm going to do my best job as a provider of pleasure, I need to master both of them. Here's the problem, though. And, and I don't know if a lot of other husbands do this. But I thought, I'm not, this is back in my early 20s, I'm not going to explain my thought process. I am going to find it on my own with her. I'm going to probe and I'm going to look and I'm going to touch and I'm going to do whatever. And one day I'm going to find her and she's going to thank me for it. That was me in my 20s. And to some degree, that's me in my 40s. But what I'm starting to realize now is that it, it, I am not inconsequential. But it is not that, first and foremost, every time she and I come, come together in the sense of you know, having intimacy, every single time it's different. The situations are different. The setup is different. Um, the locale may be different. Every single time that she and I decide together that we want to share this moment, there is a whole lot of things going around us 
that create uh, that, that that makes that moment a snowflake, individualized, and also one that is very very fragile. A lot of things can take you in and out of the moment. Uh, I, I'll tell you that not every single time is perfect. And then again, what the heck does perfection mean? If if it means that both of us to have to reach an end, then there's been a lot of times when it hasn't been perfect. At least not on her end, because for the most part, I can always get there. So again, it's not that I feel inconsequential, but but I, I come to realize that the setup is extremely important, and each time is 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 individualized, and that just because I can have a physical um, manifestation every single time doesn't mean that she can and the fact that she doesn't isn't a failure but for a long time I felt that it was my 20s were filled with that anxiety of I'm not doing enough for you because you're not reaching this end and I didn't trust her to when she said I am having a wonderful time with you but just because I don't reach that doesn't mean that it isn't. And somebody posted on the Twitter, they said, what is the best uh, advice that you have ever taken? And I, and, I, and I said, well, from someone. And I posted to them back something to the effect of trusting that verbiage. I love what you do for me. It's okay. You know, being being so. That's one of the things that that that, that, I, that I learned about this. The other thing is the fact that we, she, and I need to have better dialogue and discussion about these things. That me trying to find a, a perfect concoction for you know producing these senses doesn't work if it's just me doing it on my own in this fact finding mission. It just it it doesn't work that way. I am, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have the terminology, ironically, but that we need to have, and, and, and think of this, I mean, we've been together for 20 years, and, and sometimes we don't do very well talking to one another about this kind of stuff. Even this, in, in me talking to you, I feel like I'm all over the place, because I'm trying to give structure to a, an explosion of thoughts that I didn't have a week ago when I first heard this episode. I mean, heard the, yeah, on, on a Netflix. Um, but the fact that I am taking a lot on that really isn't mine to own. You know, that for her, you know, she is the, well, she she has her own agency. And that when, when when she and I are in the moment that she has to have enough sense of self, and I believe that my wife does, you know, sense of self to, to to coach me along so that she can she can achieve what she needs to achieve, whatever that means. And I think that over the years we have found ways to. Co- to move ourselves about to 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 subtly hint of this way that way move this way do, provide that have this um, 
this dialogue without words. Right now, I'm just making this sounds awful. I think like like every single time that it's got to be this clinical. No, we laugh a lot. I mean, I would like to think that whenever uh, we're together, there's going to be two things. Either there's going to be a comedy of errors, which is going to be wonderful, or it's you know if it's planned out, it's going to be this romantic uh, show, and it's like they do in the movies, which doesn't exist, but at least it feels like we're in the middle of a movie, and we're we're both perfect lovers, intertwined in, 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 in this blissful coitus. The thing is that, first and foremost, like I said earlier, I have to trust that I am making her happy. And whatever her definition is, that I am providing for that for her. We wouldn't be together if I wasn't doing that. Also, again, that I can't just go out there and try things on my own without having dialogue with her. That's something that I learned across the way. That it's okay for me to share with her what I've learned, have her process it, and then have her ask of me. And then we can come together, ironically, I mean no pun intended, on what works for us in that moment. Because the next time it might be different. I mean, and, and, and who knows? And, and perhaps that's the best part of all of this, is that it's always a moving target for both whenever we come together. We don't know what the circumstances are going to be around us, so we just find ourselves in that moment. Sometimes it's going to be great. Sometimes it's going to be average. Sometimes... It's going to be disappointing. I can't tell you that I always work. Starting at 40, I can't tell you that my body responds the same way as I did in 20. I'm coming to grips with that. Um, It doesn't scare me as much as it used to, as a matter of fact. I am starting to learn that, hey, my body is not filled with finite prowess, that there is a tiredness that happens to me across the day, that there are other things on my mind that prohibit me sometimes. And I used to think of that as a failure of myself as a person. And I've come to realize that I am more human than I used to like to think I was. And that's all right. There's other ways for us to find ourselves. I, I don't know. I I don't know if this is making any sense. It sort of makes sense in my mind. And and the good thing is that I guess it doesn't have to make sense to you. It just has to make sense to her and I. But what I guess the what I would tell couples out there is chuck out whatever scripts you have been giving. And they talk about this in the show. So it's not my original thought. This they call them social sexual scripts about what encounters are supposed to be like they were written quote unquote a long time ago by you know a specific group of men who had their own biases and their and they were from their own time we live we're living in different times now and we're rewriting and redrafting and re-editing and talking about so many new things. Um, and I think in bedrooms anywhere, whatever the rules are outside in the world, they may or may not apply 
between couples. I like to think that there's a lot of folk out there who are saying, yeah, okay, this is what people are telling us we're supposed to be like, but in the intimacy of our own home, we are who we are. And as long as you're not harming others, hey, do you, boo. I don't know. I'm, I am going to mark that episode of Explained um, as kind of one of those Mr. Gorski moments. And realize that, man, I thought I knew a lot at 40 about a specific thing. I didn't know shit. <laughs> There's this gal on the episode, Remy uh, Casimir, I think she's called. She's a comedian. And, and they, they spend some time in the episode uh, with her. And I, I, I applaud her bravado, her openness. Her willingness to share. It's not easy, I think, to put yourself on camera or with a recording and say, hey, I'm responsible for a lot of things. And I didn't realize that until now. Uh, so, uh, Remy, thank you. Uh, to all the producers of this episode, thank you. Um, to this gal who produced it. Uh, again, I forgot. I, I, mispronouncing it, uh, Christine Laskowski, thank you. It may not sound like it in, in this episode of, of this of, of this podcast, but you made me think, and maybe that's the reason why my brains are all scrambled, because I'm trying to make sense of what was said. And if that eventually makes me a better, more caring person, towards somebody that I completely and totally cherish, then your your uh, your talk on there has been monumental. Peace. <laughs>